Hello and welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's film is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, directed by Andrew Dominic, starring Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. My name is Cameron Tuttle and I'm joined with Juzo Greenwood today. Juzo, how are you? You're going to be the, the resident expert since I haven't seen this movie, so we'll, it'll it'll be a good talk. Yeah, thank you for having me and I'm excited to talk about this one. Yeah. Um, how have you been? It's been not that long since you've been on the show. You you guys watched The Batman uh, and talked about it. I I still have not seen that movie, so uh, you can't you can't say anything. I haven't listened to your episode either because <laughs> I I didn't I didn't it's, really want it spoiled. Well, so, I I didn't um, like it. That's that's what I thought of the Batman. Um, <laughs> I have I seen much else to of note. I mean, there's been a few new things that are good. The new Pixar movie is really good. Um. And the new Linklater movie, Apollo 10 and a half, highly would recommend that. Um, I don't know. Have you seen anything of much note lately? No, but I mean, since we've, uh, well, we, me and Isaac talked a little bit about the Oscars. Um, I was over at your house to watch the Oscars. Oh. So uh, we, we don't really have to uh, <laughs> talk Rehash about that that, that much. But, yeah. Um, it was it was pretty bad. It was it was kind of a disaster all around. So um, yeah. not fun. Oh, but but since we uh, last talked, uh, I did watch Coda, uh, the Best Picture winner. So yeah, I, I I don't have that much to say about that. Um, I I said uh, last night. I, I said it was about it was kind of like Green Book, where I thought it was good. <laughs> I I enjoyed it thoroughly. I had no qualms about it. But it really wasn't like the best thing ever, and it definitely wasn't my best picture. Um, no. But not, you know, not unpleasant at all. It wasn't. It wasn't something that I was like, "Ugh, why did that win?" You know, um, you know, pretty, pretty harmless, um, sweet movie. Coda was, um, and I, I think, well deserved best uh, uh, supporting lead mm-hmm. win. Uh, yeah, for, 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 for the, the dad, Troy Kotsur. Um, yeah, what? It, what's his name? Troy Kotsur. Um, yeah, 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 who's who's um, uh, wonderful in the movie, and and by far the also the best speech of the Oscars. Really, the only really genuine, sweet, you know, uh, moment of the night uh, <laughs> in a, in a midst of just yeah, a lot of uh, kind of embarrassing crap. But uh, yeah, Coda Green Book maybe is a good comparison because, but but we should make it clear for anyone listening that our opinion of Green Book is probably a lot higher than a lot of people at least in the film twitter world who green book is synonymous with just garbage basically and for me i mean i like green book a lot like i thought it was a really good movie and i thought coda was a really good movie but in both cases um they were probably you know like the 20th best film i saw last year you know yeah and same with green book absolutely you know like they'd they'd be in my top 25 but they were not you know, anywhere they're not in the top five by any stretch, and certainly uh, in a year with you know some of our greatest directors, literally like two of our greatest directors doing some of their greatest works ever, Paul Thomas Anderson, Steven Spielberg, it's a little bit uh, disappointing to, for it to just to go to <laughs> uh, you know a good but nice movie and pr- pretty uh, pretty yeah. uh, standard fare. I I think the thing about coda though is that it is it is a pleasant movie and it's one that everybody can kind of get behind um you know so it's not stepping on any toes at all i feel like even uh, 
even West Side Story, um, as much as it is a very nice movie and everybody who saw it uh, loved it, like it really didn't mm. make any waves necessarily in in Hollywood. You'd be uh, surprised. Of, yeah. Of, well, oh, just, well, just, just like it, it did. It came out came out to basically no fanfare. Uh, oh, nobody yeah, really yeah. went to see it. It didn't yeah. really it didn't really do anything as far as moving the needle. But uh, I know there was like some bash, backlash, I guess. But it it wasn't. Um, are, people just, just didn't talk about that movie. People, just, there's just a lot of people who didn't like it, or people who didn't. You know what I think it is about West Side Story is, and and you know, um, hopefully we can talk about this more in depth in our like if we do a best of the year episode. But that movie I think yeah. appeals specifically to people who are really into movies because it's because if you don't know about the making of movies and you're not into the craft of it. You would just go, oh, it's just the same as the other one, and of course it's not. The cr- neither, not in terms of craft, <laughs> not in terms of how it's structured, all the changes that Spielberg makes, but to just someone who's watching it casually and maybe hasn't seen the other one in fifty years, they would just be like, oh, what's the big deal about this? And uh, and it's funny when yeah. you said yeah. it's a it's a nice, pleasant movie about Coda. I was almost was gonna be like. Well, that's what licorice pizza was like to me. Licorice pizza is is a nice, pleasant, <laughs> just a lovely movie, except like made on a much higher level. Um, but, you know, kind of was, you know, thrown into this discourse cycle where it became, you know, the most controversial thing since Triumph of the Wills. And it's like, I don't know. I thought it was just a pretty nice movie. I don't know what we need to get so upset about. Weirdly, too. Yeah, it, I mean, it had a, um, it definitely had the the classic Oscar cycle of of trying mm. people trying to to snipe it. Um, you know, I, there's definitely these aren't even conspiracies, but but there's definitely shenanigans around the Oscars uh, where mm. other companies, uh, you know, maybe Apple included, will pay <laughs> for basically hit pieces against, uh, you know, against other movies. They're 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 contenders. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's a well known established fact. It's not like I'm making mm-hmm. this up for like but, the shadowy back deals. This sure, is like but there something were, that just happens. There were genuinely people who had weird hang-ups about licorice pizza and also and also they're just people who thought it was boring you know coda is a very structured movie like it Mm. moves in very conventional manner and and uh, licorice pizza i actually think it does have a structure but it seems leisurely and you know i saw a lot of my friends who have never looked on twitter in their entire lives and they were like just thought it was kind of boring and unremarkable so you know they 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 didn't you know they're not they're perfectly nice people so uh, I, I think it's just a, you know, a case of something that, um, again, maybe just hits people like us in a certain way. And we're getting into the, oh, look how PTA is, is, you know, framing the lights on <laughs> Alana Haim in the background there. And, oh, look at the, you know, the depth of this composition. And most people are just like, eh, nothing happens. Who cares? So whatever. <laughs> well, I think, I think for me, it was, it was more the, the interactions of the characters that really set that movie apart. Um, mm-hmm. just how, how brilliantly everything felt, um, and, and how casual the, uh, the experience was, mm-hmm. even though, it, you know, it feels unstructured, but it is also a hangout movie. Um, I don't know. We, I'm sure we've talked about licorice pizza enough. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we should move on and, and talk about Jesse James. Yeah, um, sure. but this is C- cinema spectator. You can support us at patreoncom slash ECSF productions. Um, and you know, that's, that's about all we, we, uh, we appreciate the support from, from you guys, the listeners. Um, and you can 
send in your questions. We never get questions. Juzo, do you have a question for me? <laughs> no, I mean, do, are we doing a hot take? Is that still a thing? Yeah, sure. Ask me a hot take. Or I could ask. I don't really have one for you, but <laughs> well, I I didn't I didn't prepare one. But how about I just throw out one out? What 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 would you say is your what would be your top five westerns of all time? Top five westerns of all time. Yeah. Well, I think. Um. I think it's evolved a little bit over the years. I used to think. Um, well, I don't know. I this this is a very you can't you can't ask me to do a top five off the spot, <laughs> but I think in rewatching so in in um uh, the preparation for the show to watch the good the bad and the ugly I rewatched uh, the Dollars trilogy, um, mm-hmm. which I I have long since considered my or you know long before that have considered basically my my favorite westerns, um, and. I was convinced before rewatching The Good and the Bad and the Ugly that um, Fistful of Dollars was my favorite one, um, and I was kind of I was kind of met on um, a few dollars more, but but definitely it was a it was kind of a running race between Fistful of Dollars and uh, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, and then rewatching all three of them in like within a week, it was clear to me that. Good, the bad, and the ugly was the best one, and, hmm, okay. and was my favorite. Um, so I think that that definitely tops my number one. Um, I think up there, uh, one the the ones that I think about the most um, would definitely be the the Dollars trilogy, and then probably um, probably True Grit. Colin's uh, True Grit. Yeah. Yeah. And then. I think a lot now uh, uh, after rewatching it about Stagecoach, um, hmm. but not in the way that it's like my favorite to to revisit and rewatch, but just how influential it was. Not even not even within the Western genre, but uh, about um, characters and about how you how you create sort of a, a mythos. Um, I guess I don't know. It it really. Um, to me, that one surprised me as uh, as being a, a a western that that really truly has lived on um, in this mm-hmm. in its spirit, um, mm-hmm. and I, I I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, yeah, that a as a movie that I didn't uh, that I didn't really care too much about uh, before rewatching it. Um, so I, I guess that would, that's not my list necessarily. I'd have to think Mm. about it more, but, um, those are the three that I think really come up most often when I think about the Western genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking about this, you know, just watching Jesse James and kind of thinking about what, where I would rank certain things. And I think my number one is still unforgiven. I definitely go for the revisionist Westerns, like the post seventies, more, you know, darker, more kind of quote unquote realistic view of the West, I think. So I, I definitely, that's probably num- number one. I don't know if uh, Josie Wales, Outlaw Josie Wales would be number two, but that would be in the top five for sure. Mm-hmm. The True Grit by the Coen brothers, I just love. Um, that's a beautiful movie. Um, I really like this movie called Little Big Man, which I, have you seen this with uh, Dustin Hoffman? No. This is, it was the guy who made um, Bonnie and Clyde, Arthur Penn. It might have been his follow-up to Bonnie and Clyde. It's a 1970 movie with Dustin Hoffman. I think Faye Dunaway's in it. 
Um, that was just a beautiful movie that kind of um, takes a, it's, you watch it, it seems a very cartoony version of the West. And the, by the end, it's like this haunting kind of uh, almost like Eastwood esque, um, mm. you know, more uh, grounded portrait. Um, and honestly, I think Jesse James could be sneaking in there in, if, you know, in the top five, also Django and chain probably would be my number five. If I'm being honest, like just in terms of pure entertainment. Yeah. Um, and fun. It's, it's yeah. definitely, it's, it's a very, in the same way that I think about all the others, I think about that one too, just in how, um, it is like a distillation of so many of what, so much of what I love about Westerns, I guess. Um, yeah. And, it just and it, looks it's, great and it's so yeah. funny and energetic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny about that movie. I was listening to a, a critique of that movie about how it's, it's, it's kind of the worst written, um, of Tarantino's movies in terms of plot wise. Um, and, and his main, his main critique was that it really wouldn't make sense that all of the, uh, the, the situation in the candy house doesn't make sense at all. Um, when they could buy Broomhilda, um, and, and it's kind of a major, major sticking point in that there's, there's no reason for them to basically, um, or for, for, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Uh, what's his his name? The, the dentist. Yeah. Uh, Dr. King Schultz. Yeah, uh, Schultz is basically breaking character after a certain point in the movie, um, and and you know he's he's very willing to. I mean, in the beginning, he buys Django, um, you know, so so it's not like he's right. he's unwilling to participate in in this system. And the easiest way and the, the best way, probably for for everything to resolve, would be to to buy Broomhilda. But isn't um, that what they're doing? No, no, no. I mean, but they they set they set up this whole elaborate scheme to to scam him out of Broomhilda um, instead of just paying just, for. It. But they're just they're just bringing the price down, aren't they? I don't know. I mean, I maybe I'm misremembering I'd have to, this. I'd have to think this, about it. Whose critique is this? Because this, I'll, you know, even if this is true, this sounds kind of very you know uh, cinema sins type. Criticism. No, 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 no. It, it was it was more of a. Um, it it was it was talking about the the characters um and breaking down their character motivations it it was better than than a, a sort of cinema sins uh, version i i i was going to agree just in the sense that his it's the least interesting written in terms of being um in it's the least structurally um adventurous tarantino movie like the, he doesn't he's not looping around with a time frame he's not um, going into flashbacks, it's it's a very very it's it's kind of his most straightforward movie, you know, hero's journey. Yeah, yeah. three. Well, it's not exactly a three act structure, but it's basically a um, it's a pretty continuous narrative. Um, but it's awesome and it's entertaining and it, is it awesome. makes me laugh yeah. and it looks cool. So I don't know. I can't complain. <laughs> that's, I mean, the whole, that's what, also, that's what well, I think about. How could you complain about the Candyland stuff when, I mean, that whole it's sequence at the dinner amazing. is probably yeah. one of the best things Tarantino's <laughs> ever done. I mean, just incredible. Yeah, I agree. So um, anyway, this is not a well, Django podcast, but no, it's not. It, it could be though. It could yeah, be. Sure. Anytime. <laughs> um, 
so uh, yeah, we're talking about the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, Robert Ford, who idealized Jesse James since childhood, tries hard to to join the reforming gang of Missouri outlaw, but gradually becomes resentful of the bandit leader um, <laughs> and assassinates him, as said in the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have not seen this movie. I watched it today. Um, and uh, it's definitely a long movie. Um, it has a lot of, I think probably most of the movie is set up between um you know, tr- getting them into position essentially as as sort of characters, um, and a lot of the movie deals with uh, the personal interactions of basically meeting your hero, um, meeting someone mm-hmm. who is um, you know y- who you look up to uh, a- as sort of this godly mythic figure, um, and having that that kind of brought down to to earth um, in a very um, unceremonious way. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what is your take in in this movie? I guess it, w- while we're talking about it, in sort of the canons, the canon of of Western movies, because in my mind, this is an interesting one to think about because it's so unlike most Western movies. Um, it's very much deconstructing mythos um the sort of myth of of the west the myth of the outlaw i guess Mm -hmm. um and all of the sequences of you know maybe action or of violence are very understated um extremely uh like the the i'm thinking about the train robbery scene uh you know first as sort of the the big set piece in the beginning um it's very slow and deliberate and not very um it's it's not it doesn't seem like a you know flashy gunslinging uh train robbery sequence and and i think obviously on purpose but um it's very much a a a deconstruction of of the west um as as sort of these these mythic characters yeah it's about as far from the you know the you know, white guy in a white hat, guy in a black hat, you know, 1940s, 50s idea of a Western as you could possibly get. And I, I mean, it, it is somewhat in line with the, you know, unforgiven type Westerns, like breaking down mm-hmm. mythology and, and sort of taking these figures that are idolized in this way and seeing, oh, they're just kind of messed up, you know, troubled, kind of psychotic disturb people and um but this movie is particularly overt about the way it's breaking down um well the way the way that history takes people who have all this complexity and all this kind of inner turmoil and flattens them into caricatures you know particularly as you see it you know towards the end of the movie the way um the way jesse james is is recontextualized in history and kind of multiple times and mm. after his I mean, it's no spoiler that he's he is killed in the movie it's in the title you know you, he's the, right after death he's portrayed in one way in the sort of in the media and in the culture and then it's you know he is re-solidified in a different way and um i don't know this movie taps into something i think about a lot because you know it's, it's part of the reason i have some you know reticence anytime i'm absorbing any kind of historical 
um, document because it's there's always a tendency to reshape history in terms of storytelling, in terms of a three act structure, in terms of good and evil, all these different kind of um, simplifiers and, and shorthand. But the film is sort of getting at that. Um, you can't, it's difficult to kind of, you know, take these people. These people are far more complex than those kind of um, methods of interpretation would, uh, would seem, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think it's, I think I find it just a really haunting movie. I love the way it's narrated. Um, it's some of my favorite just narration in any movie, both the guy's voice and just the kind of um, poetic quality it has and the way he, it's all these, you know, the narration kind of comes in these um, interstitial moments with shots of, you know, landscape or a detail or a, a chair. And it's all, it's all done. There's some interesting kind of, um, um, a warping effect that's, that's happening with the, the cinematography in those shots as well. And I love also just the narrator apparently was a, a assistant editor on the movie. Like, I think mm. he was probably just recording it as a, you know, placeholder. And they were like, no, let's, we're just going to go with that. Cause this guy is awesome. Uh, the guy's name is Hugh Ross. And, um, it gives the whole movie kind of like a fable, fable like quality. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And, an interesting use of um of narration and i think it speaks a little bit to uh i guess the mythology aspect that it's that it's talking about in the movie um you know the narrator being sort of uh he is a little bit uh, the hand of god um he is telling sort of the inside uh motivations of of some of the characters mm -hmm. um and i think even at certain points he's telling the inside um thoughts of jesse james who mm -hmm. uh, i would say is probably the least understood person least understood character in this movie um but even then there is a little bit you get a little bit of insight into his mind and where he's coming from um with the narration. And I think it is interesting that during the period that the movie is named about during sort of the assassination, um, the day and the day before there, there isn't a lot of narration. Um, and it's very left to your own, uh, interpretation. And I think mm -hmm. some of the, well, I guess let's say first and foremost spoilers, I guess, I don't know if okay. there's much to spoil um, in this movie. I, I don't know. It's, well, yeah, I guess in the plot sense, we know where it's going. So, the, but yeah, the, the characters are really kind of what's important in the movie. So if you don't if you don't want that spoiled, you know, whatever. But uh, I would say th this this movie benefits a little bit from interpreting things and from being chewed on. So I don't think if you have it spoiled, I don't think it matters that much uh, personally, but if you haven't seen the movie, check it out. Like it's a really good movie. Yeah. And yeah. Underseen, I think. Um, but you know, when, when Jesse James is, um, you know, dusting off the, the painting or the picture on his wall, um, you get a shot of him looking at the reflection, um, and, and seeing Bob. Um, and so you, you get a sense with some of the narration before that he's maybe expecting this or he's known that this was happening. 
that he understands um, sort of what this is about and he's accepting uh, his death in a certain way or that he's um, maybe even inviting it. And he has been for, for this whole period of time. Um, but it is one of those those questions in the movie that that you kind of you stop and think about it a little bit uh, f- after after that's happened. And there's sort of an, an epilogue sequence. Um, and I kept thinking sort of. Was that what was what was Jesse James thinking, basically? Um, and there's no narration about that. There's no the, it doesn't fill you in about about some of the more mysterious elements, which I think is, is a great thing. I think, I think the narration does a lot to set up the, the characters and set up what they're thinking for it to just play out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. In, in my mind, narration is, it can be tough. Uh, uh, it, it can definitely be tough to do. It can be tough to write. Uh, but, it can also be tough as an audience member to understand sort of w- where the narrator is coming from and sort of where um, where this this sense of being like told about about someone like what what place that has in the movie. Um, and so for me, I, I'm always a bit skeptical of a movie that has narration. Um, and I, I think I still am in this movie. I. I though if it didn't have narration it would probably be five at five and a half hours long and, and not uh three basically so yeah it does also help yeah it helps move things along sometimes as well um I don't know I find it very haunting like I I really enjoy just listening to the guy and and the things he's he's you know highlighting in the movie I think is really interesting um I think it really works um, that whole scene at the end, you know, or the the titular assassination scene is really interesting. Uh, when I watched it again, this is I think the third time I've seen the movie because there's certain details that I just didn't really appreciate or catch on to about him, uh, how overt basically it is as a suicide. Mm-hmm. There's a part where he he's read the newspaper clipping about, uh, uh, you know, Dick Little's confession. And of course, the the brothers, the Ford brothers, are terrified. And then Pitt goes and he looks out the window at his daughter, and it's this moment of sort of calm, like it gets really quiet, mm. and the um, you hear the girl singing a song or something. There's even like an insert of her shoe that had fallen off earlier, like yeah. a scene earlier, which is really. It's like one of those things. It's like Ozu cutting to a vase, where you, you're like, "Why is that there?" But it. <laughs> it's it's right like it's the right place to cut to that you know um and then it's that moment of quiet also you're you're looking at pit through that warped glass you know which is another yeah. uh, really interesting motif of the movie is they they made sure to get the period glass uh where it has this kind of uh, warping effect that that the director that deacons and the director really take advantage of um and then yeah so after that little taking that little moment uh that's when Pitt says, I think I'm going to take off my, my guns now. And, uh, so I was like, it's like the first time I saw it, I was like, is he committing suicide? And then this time watching, I'm like, Oh wait, you know, he definitely, it's like, it's like almost hitting, not hitting on the head, but it's, it's very clear. That's what he's doing. Um, yeah. 
and just oh god i mean we could we could do a whole podcast just on that scene and how beautifully done it is with that um that score the score the score of the whole movie nick cave and warren ellis uh is just so beautiful and that that piece that plays when he gets up on the chair and um and just and just you know the performances of all three of them are just terrific yeah um i think one of the things that um yeah it's it's interesting because when i like the first hour probably i was a little um i don't know about underwhelmed but i was kind of i was struggling to get in into the the movie for in yeah, some ways like, where is this going kind of thing um i mean you know where it's going but like there's a there's a bit of of you don't really care um there's kind of a a sense that things are are a little meandering you you're not really invested in jesse james at this point um you don't really care about him and and bob you you think is just contemptible i mean the really like um, <laughs> i don't know for me least, I, yeah. I i didn't i didn't like him at all i mean throughout the movie i think um he has a he has like a, a very sniveling um attitude uh that i think you know played very well by by casey oh, yeah. affleck but yeah casey affleck can play that register very well yeah uh but he uh he, he sort of you you like you pity him there's like a there's like a dip you you hate him and you pity him and then you hate him again you know there's no you have no love or um you know sense of connection with with him at all um but you know the the start of it you you don't feel that much for 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 jesse james either um you don't feel that much for his brother or his gang um and you you kind of you kind of don't really get a sense that these are um people you're supposed to root for and even when you know they they get uh they get captured at one point um which is is all off screen you know most of the gang gets captured um and there's a sense of you not really caring about that either. It doesn't feel like there's a sense of of danger um, at all that that you necessarily care about. Um, I wonder if I, I assume that's that's partially on purpose um, because you you know the it's part of the point of of having these characters be just um, kind of depraved and and not very likable uh but either, in, either psychotic or pathetic you know yeah or some combination yeah, exactly. of the two. um and you know it 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 feels um it, it really isn't until you that dinner sequence uh between right right after they they kill um wood height yeah. um and that is a is a good is a good scene to sort of draw you back in to what's happening. Um, and you have to think a little bit about like, okay, what are their relationships? Um, he's Jesse James's cousin, but how are they all sort of connected and living in this house? And so you have to like think a little bit, um, which I think is like the sloppiest part of the movie. It is tying all of the, the characters together, um, in a way that's understandable. Yeah. Um, This is where rewatching it for the third time and also being able to glance at Wikipedia, it improves the movie a yeah. little bit because there's definitely, I don't know if they ever explicitly say who, like there's one other guy, Pat Healy at the table, dinner table with them. 
Uh, and and I didn't understand that was another one of he was another Ford brother. Mm-hmm. And I might have even missed that the the woman was their sister. Um, and she has a different. Also, they use different names because they all have aliases. So yeah, there's, there's yeah. parts so, of it that are confusing. <laughs> you have to get out your your um, you know cheat sheet a little bit um, because and then all the just different dynamics of all these different guys in the gang. I can certainly understand being a little less positive on your first viewing of the movie. Cause I mean, I've, th- this is the first time I felt like I was like, I think I love this movie. The other two times I was either somewhere between this is really great, but it's a little bit slow or this is really great, but I'm a little confused or I'm, I'm a little confused why I'm looking at this. Like, why am I we're now, we're now following a tertiary character on yeah. like a, a, what seems like a side adventure, but actually it's like, there is a reason for everything once you know the grand arc of the movie, which is really about, and, and this is also where I'm going to, you know, sort of say that the, the character's not being likable or not being sympathetic or, you know, just being kind of pathetic is all, I think, intentional and, and right for the movie because it, yeah. I think it, it feels like the movie is all about all these people um, kind of, all, all these little petty things they end up doing to each other that that sort of um, snowball into this, you know, grand, you know, tragedy, basically. You know, there's that whole sequence where uh, uh, Wood Height and Dick Little are going to... It's like Wood Height's father's place. And the, yeah. the father's this elderly man with an ear trumpet. And he's married to, like, <laughs> this woman who's, like, the same, like, you know, like, 40 years younger. And... Um, and Dick Littles is flirting with her and, and you're kind of like the first time you watch it, you're like, what, what, what even is this? Like, what am I looking at here? But I mean, it's a good scene and it's, it's well acted. It's interesting. And then sort of nothing comes of it for a while. Like you don't see, you don't see the conversation between Wood Height and Dick Little yeah. the morning after, you know, it just, then it, and this is also, I should also mention some of this could be a result of the movie being believe it or not, cut down. Even The movie is two hours, 40 minutes. But the original, not just like the assembly, but like the intended first cut of the movie was, I think, like four hours long, maybe longer. <laughs> and Deakins has said he wishes that's what was made. And I would love to see that. Because in a way, I think there's a case to be made. There's certain things that could have been fleshed out more, certain things you feel like the movie has to jump over just because it, it's, it you know, can't be a miniseries. But I would, I think, I think, there's um there's something to be said that that there are things that could be cut out i mean you look at some of the you know you get zoe de chanel or sam shepherd like these really famous actors in very small roles yeah that's probably a result of them being trimmed down in the final uh, final cut of the movie um well i i was gonna say that it it does feel like it was meant to be miniseries length i guess um and i i do think it would benefit in in some ways for for the length of um i think really just cleaning up that beginning section getting you interested in how these people are connected maybe even following them from a little bit before um and sort of picking up some of the the connections and and starting to to tie some of these things together i i really think could benefit the the story and partially um i think probably most people were 
I I don't know. This movie was kind of mixed uh, reception when it came out, right? Um, and mm-hmm. it has has become much more well renowned uh, since then. That's um, true. So I, I feel like I don't know. One of the um, I think it might have helped if if this was made nowadays. Uh, on HBO, basically. Even though it's only 15 years ago, it's a totally different landscape in terms of um, film directors who are not making, other than than Soderbergh, who has always was ahead of the curve, no one was really doing that. I'm going to direct a TV series in 2007. And uh, I mean, I mean, on one hand, that would, I mean, I'd love to see a longer version of this. On the other, I do like the condensed aspect of just it being a movie. Um, and certainly I think if this was made nowadays, it also would be, um, it would not look as cool and it would not be, it would yeah. not have the grand scale it feels like it has because it would be shot digitally for one thing and it would not, so it would not look, I mean, at least in my, I mean, Deacon stuff digital does look good, but I mean, this movie looks beautiful. I wouldn't want to touch anything about how this movie looks. And then I think it wouldn't have, you know, it's it's pretty rare unless you're Tarantino or Scorsese that you can mount a movie of that scale as a guy who just made one indie crime movie. I mean, it's sort of amazing that he, I mean, I think probably Brad Pitt being in the movie got him the clout to, sure, you know, mount something of that scale. But it's, it's really, really impressive. And just well, an incredible cast of people, too. Thinking about it, though, um, it, it only has a budget of uh, $30 million, right? Which is not that much in the grand scheme of things. Um, it is kind of a, I guess it'd be like a middling sort of blockbuster movie um, or lo- maybe a low uh, budget blockbuster movie. So, um it seems right uh, for someone who's kind of made one movie before that um, and is sort of trying to spread his wings to have a movie that has kind of a big star, um, smaller budget, but um, still pretty sizable for what it is. Uh, But the end product is kind of what's surprising because you, you imagine that with that sort of deal you have, uh, you know, studio heads who come in and are like, why is this movie three hours long? And, uh, there's no action and poetic narration. It it only has one train robbery scene. And like, uh, Brad Pitt isn't in the movie for like half of it. (laughs) Like what, what's going on? (laughs) Yeah. So you, you've, 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 I would think that this movie would have been changed a lot in its production. And it probably was, um, and it probably took a great deal of um of fighting on the part of dominic uh to get this to be sort of where it was especially in 2007 i mean what was coming out in 2007 that was creative other than you know there will be blood and what the coen brothers were doing but you know basically this was you know this was this was kind of a a dry spell, I would say, um, the mid two thousands were of, of fairly innocuous, uh, action uh, movies and sci-fi movies. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you say that, but it's honestly it looks pretty nice <laughs> to me nowadays, <laughs> 2007, you get, you get, there will be blood. You get this no country, you know, Ratatouille waitress, Michael Clayton all in the same year. I mean, I'm that's, that's, you know that's that's pretty awesome to me um 
but I don't know in terms of box office what <laughs> what the numbers were, if any of those are really... Um, I'm sure Ratatouille and Superbad were really big, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think this was a big hit. This no, is definitely... No, I think it, I think it lost money. Yeah. <laughs> I think it and lost think a lot is, of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this is definitely, you know, a case of it being a... Um, either a cult favorite and also just buoyed by it being a lot better when you rewatch it. Cause mm. this whole thing we were talking about, you're talking about with the characters not having enough development. I probably would agree with you in some ways, but it's like now I watch it a few times. You almost, you get into the rhythm of it where you're just like, Oh, there's, there's Ed Miller. There's Dick little, you know, there's all these, all the boys I'm familiar with. And it just becomes more, you sort of accept the ungainliness of the film structure, I think, and just sort of enjoy the, the, um, the vibe and the beauty of it. And, and the just the performances because I just think, I mean, is this this has got to be one of the best Brad Pitt performances I've ever seen? I yeah, mean, I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to say because I think Brad Pitt is one of those uh, actors that kind of um, always gravitates to <laughs> movies that make him look awesome and where he doesn't have to do like, like it's, it's like a convergence of like things that he has to do and things that will make him look awesome. Um, but he's <laughs> but always so good though. I mean, other than not to stuff say that it's maybe... bad, but I'm just saying like he, he's kind of, um, in, in a lot of his choices, I think he's, he's very much subdued in what he tends to do. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe in some of the more, you know, like World War Z, but I mean, I, I would, I would say that he, he is even in this movie where he is like literally the, the casting of him is crucial to the point of the movie and yeah. him being a famous person, an iconic person and a person of incredible, you know, handsomeness and power and just kind of, um, you know, is the center of any room he's in. Um, there's a really, imp- you know, impressive amount of vulnerability that he's showing yes. in this character and, and just the sense of, of betrayal and, and the, the subtlety of his performance. There's so many scenes where he is, the movie is just sitting, the camera's just sitting on him and you get to sort of register his, um, understanding of things or understanding of this person is not on his side or this person is betraying him or, um, him just sort of clocking situations and then deciding, is he going to do something about it or is he just going to let it sit and, and sort of ride things out? And, um, I also think it's just this, it's an interesting, um, this movie encapsulates a lot of different things about him the movie star and the charisma aspect and the, and also the like menacing quality or the quality mm-hmm. of, of being intimidating that he has, which he has kind of in one spot time in Hollywood, even though he's so charming in that, you know what I mean? Like yeah, he's, yeah. he's charming, but you're like, this guy, you know, could kill someone. Um, <laughs> and probably but, did. <laughs> and probably did. But in, but also it's like, there are aspects of this that I think other than the, the tree of life were the, the most I've ever seen him, um, be vulnerable. I mean, that whole scene where he beats up the kid and then, you know, has this breakdown. I mean, it's so, um, kind of like pathetic and, Mm. and just very open, but, and, and real. And it's just, just incredible acting. But I, but I do think he's more willing to not be the cool guy that maybe you're giving credit for. Cause I, you know, having just, I just watched seven again and I, something I totally didn't appreciate about that movie was he's really just, he's really going for, 
being a dumbass in that movie. Like he's just yeah. really, really um, happy to be in contrast to the, you know, calm and intelligence of Morgan Freeman and just seem really kind of naive and um, uncultured and kind of um, even silly at times in that movie. And, and, uh, and certainly if you look at burn after reading, I mean, that that's him being, you know, as idiotic and as silly as, as can be. Um, I would say the only aspect of, of Pitt that's not really present in, as in Jesse James is, is the humor aspect. I mean, there's not like a lot of humor in this movie. It's a pretty solemn movie. Yeah. Um, but, well, and, and even the, the bits that are, um, where he's making light of something are, are made to seem very menacing. Um, and mm-hmm. it touches into his, his much darker, uh, portrayal of, of this character who's, you know, very clearly haunted by a lot of what he's done. Um, I really love the sequence and this is kind of what I, when I really truly fell in love with the movie, I guess, um, where he sort of takes on Charlie, um, and it's, it's kind of just them, just the two of them, um, mm. for, for a while. Um, I really love that whole sequence of how the dynamic shifts when he's, he's sort of portraying himself as, you know, the, the, the celebrity, uh, when he's in a group and sort of around the dinner table. Um, and then once it hones into just the two of them, he really shows sort of who he is. Um, and it hones down a lot more to sort of how paranoid and, uh, you know, uh, probably rightly so, but also how ruthless he really is. Um, and you know, that sequence where he's retelling, um, what he did Mm. to, uh, uh, Ed Miller to, to Ed Miller, um, is, is haunting. It's very, it's very dark. Um, yeah. And terrifying. Yeah. And, and it's and Rockwell too is go ahead. It's well, I was going to say it's shot in a way that, um, is, is so beautiful and contemplative, um, mm-hmm. and very, very dreamlike, uh, in some ways where you don't, you mm-hmm. don't see that very often in, in a lot of, um, uh, Deacon's work. Um, I think this whole movie has, um, things that are very unique to, to Deacons, um, that I think, uh, you, you kind of have never seen again, basically. This is a very mm-hmm. one-off movie stylistically for Deacons. Well, it's unusual for him to, I don't want I think I don't want to say show off because I don't think anything he does is showing <laughs> off, but this is this, this, and maybe Blade Runner are anomalies in that you watch them and you go, you're going, holy crap. Yeah. You know, every other shot in the movie of just like, it's incredible what he's doing. And I think a lot of times he, his movies always are look amazing Deacons, but they, they tend to be a little more subtle and maybe not, not noticeable to someone who's not super into cinematography. And it's a a little bit more, you know, he definitely doesn't, he's not big on calling attention to himself as a cinematographer. Um, and again, I don't think he's doing it in a narcissistic way in this movie, but there are definitely some shots where you're like, Oh my God, like the, there's the whole thing with the train sequence yeah. is just, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's on another level. He's, yeah. He's ever done pit walking through the steam and the, you know, the shafts of light going through and, 
yeah, hitting all the James gang members. Um, it's just incredible. Um, but you know, everything in the movie, as cool as it looks and how much we can, you know, lose our minds, it, you know, just in terms of cinematography, it is, um, it's always in service of the, the story in terms of the, in service of the characters yeah. in service of what's going on, the tone of the different scenes, you know, that scene with Ed Miller you were talking about is, is very dreamlike and it is shot kind of oddly in that there's a, there's like a kind of a clearly artificial light source on them that I guess you could justify as moonlight, but it seems like very, yeah. it's, it's not a natural night um, in the middle of nowhere lighting scheme but it works just in the kind of weirdness of the scene and the scene as sort of told in his, you know, you could either, it's kind of Sam Rockwell imagining the scene almost. So, you know, it, it works. And then there's just all this great stuff with the whole, you know, shooting people through windows, reflections. Um, he always, you know, I, he, he has such a, a strong sense of also of, of when to, be still and when to move the camera. Mm. I think of Deacons in, in terms of, I think of him more in terms of stillness as opposed to when I think of like Lou Bezky, I think of him yeah. moving the camera around or long takes, even though like Deacons famously made a long take movie in 1917. Um, I think of him with the, these sort of still shots of people and, and, um, and then just like the slow push-ins he does, you know, it's, it's always very, very, um, there's always an intention with him and, and it, he, and he saves them by not doing it a lot. It, it feel, you feel something when all of a sudden you're pushing in. Isn't there a moment when he's uh pit is reading this, the Dick little newspaper story and he's stirring his coffee mm. and the, and it just starts to like push, push in a little bit on this. Yeah. And then yeah. a little bit on Casey Affleck. And it's just like the tension in the, in the scene is just fantastic. Um, well, I, yeah. it's it's interesting because I think of Deacons as a very um, deliberate uh, filmmaker in in terms of what he chooses to do, um, and you know where Lubeski is very um, not uh, you know maybe show off he is is appropriate in sometimes, but but he's very sure. he very much calls attention to his his movement and to his camera work and to the way things look. Um, and you know, don't get me wrong. It's all very beautiful, um, and works well for the movies that he's doing. But with, with Deacons, I think he's, he's much more restrained. Um, even though he does, uh, really utilize movement to, to an extreme degree and you wouldn't even notice it, um, you know, in, in sort of handheld shots. And, um, he uses a mixture of, of steady cam and, um, you know, these, these very fluid moving shots, uh, but all in a way that make it almost unnoticeable. Um, and he's very, he's very, um, contemplative about what he does when, and, and so I think, I think what you're saying about sort of those slow push in moments, um, is really true that he uses that, um, to reveal something about these characters, um, to show you that they know what's going to happen. They know something, some, something has changed within their relationship basically. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I think that's why he's, that's why that sequence, you know, and it goes on for for you know like 
25 minutes or whatever the that whole day is is kind of a large section of the movie um it is it feels so tense and it feels so um even if it's if it's drawn out plot wise um every moment is filled with a sense of of deep tension and um longing and betrayal and it's sort of dripping with with you know dramatic irony in in so many ways um in a lot in part because of of the way that the camera moves um and and i noticed um there were moments where it felt like you're watching what bob is watching if that makes sense um you're it's it's you know, point of view from, from Bob's perspective. And then it shifts to point of view of Jesse James's perspective. And so, you know, you, you get that shot of him looking out the window um, and seeing the shoe and seeing his, his daughter. And, um, and then you get the, the shot of, of Bob looking over at his brother, basically, you know, saying like, this is the time essentially. Um, and so there's so, and then, you know, he walks sort of back across the frame and you follow, you follow Jesse James from, from the, you know, the Bob perspective. Bob. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's these little touches that I think really set Deacons apart as a filmmaker. Um, just in terms of how, how people have, learned a lot from i think his his language um and how deliberate he is how his his movements the way i think the fact that he uses um basically one angle when he does when he does these shots he doesn't use sort of a multi-cam um efficient setup i think that has since he's you know come on the on the scene that's been a big push for a lot of cinematographers to ditch the you know the two angle uh you know shot reverse shot sort of setup in favor of something that's much more um deliberate and reveals something about the characters mm-hmm. so yeah i mean i mean we should i mean we don't want to you know take away credit from dominic too because i'm sure um you know he he's the one who calls the shots ultimately but but yes there is a really uh, deliberate quality to everything even i was thinking about you know, there's a very simple scene where Jesse is talking to um, Ed Miller, and Ed Miller is terrified. It's a really long scene yeah. in this, his his freezing house, and um, just I, I remember noticing how when it went from like a medium close up to a close up, it was that was deliberate. Like that changed the 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 air in the room. You know, just by that, you know simple simple cutting in that way yeah um and there's so much in this in this movie that's like that um what's the effect he's doing in the whole in those interstitials is it i think my friend kurt explained this to me i think it's like a is it a, using a, like a split diopter effect or is it just putting like i don't know so um he had these lenses special made they're called the deaconizers um and really? so they're they're uh, they're uh, an, an extra optic that you put on top of a lens that you're using basically um okay. and so what you know what they are it's it's basically a vintage piece of glass um that sort of has these vignettes and these 
uh, distortions on them shot through um, and that, you know, then a normal lens is used to shoot through that, basically. Um, so, you know, they they actually still I think they still have them like the rental house that did it for them. Um, so like, wow. they're, yeah, they're they're people. I don't think people use them, but, uh, you know, it was it was something that he basically commissioned to you know do for for this movie specifically and i think the effect that he wanted was like it was shot with one of those old um you know brownie Mm -hmm. uh uh photo cameras you know that had like silver halide for for their you know you got the big plates of (laughs) right um, right you know as your photographer as your photograph um, he wanted it to look like that sort of vintage style. Um, and I, I think when thinking about this movie compared to true grit, uh, which is a very, you know, obviously also shot Deacons. again by, by yeah. Deacons. Um, it's, it's very different how those two are shot. That movie is shot much more like a classic fifties Western. It's shot like a John Ford movie in a lot of ways. Um, well, except, except more on location and more, yes, um, (laughs) more realistic and dark. Um, but it's not the, that movie is completely, there's no affectation to it. It's very, it's very literal, very straightforward. Yeah. Which is not to say, I say this in any negative way. That movie is great. Well, and I, I think um, the way that that works, too, is that he uses in, in True Grid, I think he uses light much more um, creatively throughout the movie, I guess. Um, and he's able to in a way that is, um, you know, reminiscent of those old school, um, you know, Westerns that are very sort of stylistic and in some ways um completely unrealistic you know you got you got day for night sequences and so like he 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 doesn't do day for night in true grip but he does use the sort of the blues and the yellows and uses a lot of color mm-hmm. in that movie um mm-hmm. much more than than he does in in jesse james um mm-hmm. and i i remember there's a couple shots that i think about when i think about true grit one is like the co- courthouse scene um in mm-hmm. in the uh like the opening where it walks in right. and, and sort of there's these like big shafts of light um, streaming yeah. in through the courthouse. And, and I yeah. think he's able to use, um, you know, in, th- in this movie, there's not as much um, it's, it's shot kind of plainly in the lighting aspect Obviously, there's exceptions. Um, you know, the the two that we mentioned was the the train robbery sequence and the um, the you know walking uh, at, uh, Charlie's vision of of you know him killing um, Ed Miller. Ed yeah. Miller. Um, or flashback. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And and so those are sort of um, you know like the most hyper stylized and in in a lot of ways, but I think kind of throughout the movie, the lighting is, is dialed back a little bit. Um, and, uh, in, in some ways the framing and the, the camera angles and sort of the, the way that he moves the camera is, is like the, the way that things are shot, um, throughout the movie. And so like he, he uses a lot of lens choices and movement choices, in this movie where I think in true grit, he uses much more 
lighting decisions and, um, you know, those kinds of, um, color decisions that I think are, it's, it's just a different, it gives a different feeling to, um, to how the movie looks and feels, even though it's, you know, shot by the same person. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it says a lot about the different, the Coen brothers don't, at least, at least not since their early days, they, they're not really going for, they, they, they tend to have a pretty restrained style. And yes. I think there's this Jesse James movie. It's a lot more, I think he's going for something a lot more dreamlike and a lot more, you know, for free, it's not too pretentious, but it is like sort of like memory, you know, especially those sort of distorted, the vignetting effect that he's doing on those scenes and, and the narration and the stuff with the glass, all of that sort of um, reinforces it as being something that's kind of like in the past and something kind of forgotten. Um, but, you know, but really effective in that way. And um, what do you think about the whole way the movie continues after his, his killing? Cause I feel like that kind of is what seals the, the greatness of what the movie is saying and what, what it's expressing. Um, yeah. And the way you see the, the two Ford brothers in the aftermath. And I just think that's just so powerful. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, that whole epilogue sequence. I think it's, I think it's really well done. Um, and I, I agree in that it really would feel like not the conclusion of the story if they, if they stopped sort of with the assassination, you know, cause it, it really is about the fallout of what happens to them and sort of their lives. Um, and I think, you know, the, the show element that he puts on, uh, you know, after and, and how he's trying to recoup that sort of fame and infamy, infamy with his, um, you know, he almost, he, it's, it says it in the beginning, you know, Jesse James asks him like, I, I always wonder if if you want to be me or or if you want to be like yeah, me yeah. or if you want to like be me. me. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and so that that question echoes throughout that that epilogue of him being, um, you know, almost almost trying to to uh, you know to make himself be the the hero that that Jesse James. Um, uh, was to to so many people and or the yeah the the, the myth, mythological version of Jesse James not yes. not the real tormented miserable the, psychotic real Jesse James the the Jesse James that he you know reads about in his comic books and exactly um, you know so so it it I think it really it's a haunting conclusion in a lot of ways because it it does recontextualize. Um, Jesse James and it re recontextualizes Bob Ford in, in some ways of mm -hmm. what you think about him too. And so sort of in those last moments after, you know, obviously it's pretty contemptible what he does with the, you know, the show and he reenacts his betrayal of, <laughs> yeah. of Jesse James, you know, which is, is totally, you know, disgusting. But after a while you, you kind of, you kind of like him to a certain degree as he matures and grows older, you, you get a sense that he regrets, um, what he does and he wants to move on and sort of take this as maybe a terrible lesson in his life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it end it ends up coming back to haunt him uh, terribly. Yeah. And then, and then the way he's killed, I just love the way he does that with the the narrator talking about no one, no one would uh, pay to yeah. you know step into the homes where Robert Ford grew up. Uh, no one would pay 25 cents for a, you know, a picture of his, his body on ice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then again, just the music, um, that's just so beautifully done. And yeah, the whole, the whole Affleck thing and the whole thing with him and that search for fame and that kind of, um, I mean, it really is like a modern celebrity, like parasocial relationship. Like yeah. there's so much yeah. kind of resonance to the way people, even nowadays have this weird relationships to the, to famous people. And and I love that first, that scene kind of early in the movie where he's sitting next to Jesse on the front porch and he's talking about all the things he knows about him. And, and Jesse is kind of smiling and being patient, but is clearly like a little bit annoyed. And <laughs> I, I almost find like, I get like embarrassed watching the scene. Cause I'm going like, Oh God, that like reminds me of like meeting some director I like or something, you know, some famous person. And you're like, Oh God, um, because that there is this weird imbalance where it's like, you know, a ton about them and they don't know anything about you and they're so much more interesting than you. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just this sort of this, this weird, very specific dynamic that I think, and the way Affleck plays it and the, the nervousness that he kind of has is, is just so, is so well played. And, and then, yeah, and then for that, and then for that to become him getting fame on account of killing Jesse is just like so kind of poetic and yeah, and uh, and great. Um, and also, I we I would be remiss if we don't talk about Sam Rockwell, who I just think is kind of the underrated, uh, you know, another powerhouse of this movie because he's just like I'm just blown away by that guy in every <laughs> movie he's in. He's just so good the way he plays fear. Mm. You know, and the, like where he where he's laughing, he's trying to tell jokes, but he's just terrified underneath. Um, and then the the kind of his performance just in the aftermath and that guilt he has is really just and you know some of the best stuff I've ever seen him do. Um, I don't know. I mean, like the whole the whole the whole cast really is great too. Even even like Mary Louise Parker who plays Jesse's wife, you know, is just kind of a small role, but there's even, you know, when you watch it again, you're like, Oh, there's some interesting details about the way she kind of looks at Bob, you know, like when, when she's like, Oh, I didn't know Bob was coming over for yeah, supper, you know, yeah. this kind of, this kind of suspicion she already has. Uh, you know, and the way and that she, the- she, she, you know, uh, reacts after it's all gone down, you know, is, is very, yeah, yeah, yeah. is very really. affecting. Um, I think yeah, she plays, absolutely. she plays it so well. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like you're right that the whole cast is kind of overshadowed by these two, you know, massive performances that are, you know, really well done. Um, but I agree. I mean, I think there's there's performances that are excellent all around. Um, the guy who plays, uh, I always what is his name? Uh, Ed Ed Miller. Um, the guy who. Oh uh, yeah, Garrett Dillahunt. Uh, yeah, just kills the greatest it. Actor. Yeah, the guy. He's so good at playing it like a stupid person. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in a way, he's kind of like the nicest of the group. Honestly, like he's just a pretty. 
he just wants to meet a nice girl, you know, and then they're just <laughs> making fun of him because the girl was actually a prostitute. Um, and I, I sort of, one of the things I'm a little still unclear about is when he is terrified when he's with Jesse, is he, is he actually guilty or is he just terrified because he thinks Jesse will think he's in cahoots with the, the people who betrayed him? Cause I, I thought at that point it's, it's um, Dick little and, the you, you never see Jim Cummings, but it's 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 Little and Cummings who are preparing to betray Jesse, right? Yeah, not not Ed Miller. Um, I don't know. Or is he in cahoots? I I I thought of it as he was in cahoots, too, or he was at least he was privy to their um to their information, you know. So mm-hmm. how would he know if not, you know, by being involved well, in some way? Um. And it almost feels like he's yeah he's getting killed more just because he's a nervous wreck <laughs> than because he's about to do anything you know yeah um, well I I uh, think I think part of his um you know trepidation in those in that sequence is he is just as aware uh, uh, as anybody else that Jesse James is basically a psychopath and will you know is is completely unpredictable um and so mm-hmm. even if he and and extremely paranoid too i think that's that's the yeah. thing that is nailed down in sort of the later part of the movie that if if jesse james thinks that he is in cahoots and he knows because he's in in cahoots um that is not going to look good on his part you know and and then even maybe even more so it's not going to look good for his character that he's telling Jesse James <laughs> um you know right. so i think i think all of, all those those things combined is is sort of what puts him at such a such a disadvantage in that sequence and so he, he knows mm-hmm. he's terrified i think cuz he knows what's going to happen he he's 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 done for yeah and and i don't know the the movie's just filled with so many interesting like odd details or, or like creepy things like the whole thing where he's beheading the snakes mm. is just <laughs> no we were talking yesterday about the be- the beetle being beheaded and the good dinosaur <laughs> and i and when that snake scene was coming up i was like oh god is this gonna turn my stomach but i realized it's actually very much less disturbing than the pixar scene because it's he, the director does it in a normal way like you see them getting <laughs> cut briefly and then he cuts away right yeah um you see it but it's like it's quick but it, it's like in the Pixar thing, he does it like it's I mean, it's like Jimmy Hoffa getting shot, you know, in the Irishman. Like it's just in a wide shot. And you're like, what am I looking at? Um, anyway, ter- horrifying. Me and Cameron were having a conversation about the good dinosaur beetle beheading scene uh, last night and how it's. Well, I, I was going to say it's haunted me, but actually I completely like repressed the memory. And then it came back because I saw it suggested on YouTube and now it's haunting me still. Um, but the, the snakes, yeah. And the, of course those can't be real snakes, I would assume because no, I don't think so. <laughs> you would, you would, you can't get away with that these days. I mean, oh, if, and then the, if the it was thing, a Western in the fifties, yeah, they would be real snakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just throw the horses off the cliff. Who cares? But you know, the other thing that's like one of the most creepy things in the whole movie that's, and again, it's done in this way where it's not commented on. And it's just like a detail that's thrown in. And you're just like, this is the world that these people exist in is the way they, the, um, Dick little is, is grooming the girl, the, the niece of 
Bob Ford. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the swing, yeah. You know, and and, it's, and like the narrator's talking, like he had turned his affections towards you know uh, the the daughter. Yeah. You know the, the, you know, the mother had spurned him, and and you know it's just like this little girl, and and it's it's so funny because um, if you watched it, if if you saw it just from afar, you just think, oh, it's just like he's just playing with some little girl. But because the narration, because you watch it in this context, it's just like the most horrifying thing. And there's and Wood Heights standing over there, like <laughs> wishing he could get in with the little girl. And you're like, oh, my God, like it's just like but that's just the world like that's that is just normal. Like that was just normal behavior that wasn't even like frowned upon. In that time, and I think know? there was a there. There's a a line there. I'm not going to repeat it, but there there's a line that definitely more than hints about sort of that that kind of grooming relationship with between the two. But you're oh, you're right, right? Yeah. That um, there's a there's a sense of it being just totally normal. Um, like there's nothing mm-hmm. there's nothing awry with with what we're watching, uh, which is, is kind of maybe more creepy uh, than, than anything else. I was going to say, I was going to bring up the, the moment after they, they, they shoot, um, wood height. Um, and he's kind of laying there on the floor and, and Bob says like, well, you may as well pay your respects now to him. And there's this very like, disturbing scene where they're like sitting over his body and <laughs> and yeah, just like really, commenting and you're like you're like is yeah. this are they like are they like sad that he's gone or are they like is this ironic like what's going on no, it's that's such, yeah that i forgot about that moment it's it's almost like like out of a david lynch movie because yeah. they're talking yeah. really loud yeah. you know they're like well wood hope you're doing all right I uh, hope you're not in any pain. Uh, that kind of sucks, doesn't it? I would get you, you know? some water, but I I'm afraid you would choke on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. Again, it's again just so so kind of matter of fact, and and also the violence that that precedes his death is is so interestingly done, where they keep missing each other. Yeah, like yeah, it's just yeah. very awkward. But again, kind of in like what you would imagine, you know. That 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 shooting would be retold probably in in the <laughs> Robert Ford biography in that yeah, time yeah, as yeah, like yeah. really awesome and like you know some really cool um, standoff, but really it was just it's two guys pathetic. awkwardly yeah. shooting each other while Sam Rockwell throws himself out a window, <laughs> and then um, and then you know and then Bob you know just clips him in the head, um, which I yeah, mean the, he's the got whole, he's got quite the eye on him apparently, <laughs> yeah pretty pretty yeah pretty strong aim. But yeah, the, the whole movie it has this quality of, you know, again, it, it just comes back to like these these people are you know going to be told in history books as you know much more simplistic kind of caricatures, but it's like in real life they're just these weird sort of desperate pathetic creeps, you yeah. Know? yeah. And um, you know, so much of history is, I feel like, is, um. I don't know that that aspect kind of is is papered over, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's all I have. Uh, but I'm glad that you you finally made me watch this three hour movie. Um, next, it's gonna be JFK, right? <laughs> oh my god! Oh, well, you're gonna love a JFK, dude. That's such a great movie. Um, yeah. No, I'm glad you. It's. I mean, it sounds like you liked it at least. I did. You yeah. know, maybe with some caveats, but you liked it, and um, yeah, it's definitely something that it's. Um, you know, it's coming around to maybe more acclaim, but it's definitely, I think it's, it's a kind of an underseen movie. And certainly in terms of the Brad Pitt 
canon. I think this is, you know, deserves to be put up there with, you know, Tree of Life or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of his best performances. Yeah. Um, and also this this director, I just think is really, you know, underrated. He did. Uh, I was talking to you before this about he did a documentary about Nick Cave, the musician. That's just really a beautiful. Again, just beautifully shot black and white documentary. It's kind of part music video, part um you know, portraying Cave, just showing Cave in the aftermath of this personal tragedy. And um, and then he, he did another movie with Pitt that also is just terrific called Killing Them Softly, which is a, a much more straightforward. It's like a 90 minute crime movie. Uh, where is it? It might be in Detroit. I can't remember. It's somewhere very, very kind of seedy and um, very much takes place during the 2008 um, Obama election because there's definitely this kind of maybe a little bit on the nose contrast going on between the kind of uh, you know sold vision of America versus the actual America and um, yeah I'm really excited because he's he's got another movie coming up about Nick Cave and then he's got this movie Blonde coming out about um, Marilyn Monroe and I was thinking about watching this again how you know I wonder how much those might have some you know, similarities because the story of Marilyn Monroe again is another Mm. um, example of a really, really iconic, famous person who has their image commodified into something kind of simplistic, but who of course in real life led a very troubled and tumultuous life. And I wonder, I wonder if there will be some kind of um, similar, I mean, I don't know if he'll do like the narration and all that. I mean, I would love if, I would love if every movie was narrated by this guy. Like, I just love listening to this guy. <laughs> but, um, but it's, you know, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis are doing the music for Blonde as well. And Anna de Armas playing Marilyn Monroe, I just think is like perfect. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited. One of the, one of the movies I'm most looking forward to this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't seen any of his other movies, but, um, interested in, in Blonde and, um, I don't know. A ninety-minute crime thriller sounds pretty, pretty up my alley. So, uh, oh yeah, no, yeah. you would dig it. It's cool. It's a cool movie. Yeah. Um, Pitt Gandolfini, Ben Mendelsohn, just great. Yeah. Um. All right. Yeah, I think that's about it for me. Well, it was a good show. I had fun. I'm glad we got to to chat yesterday at dinner too. That was fun. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, we'll we'll have you back on the show soon. I don't know what we're doing next week, but I was thinking maybe continuing the Deacons train maybe one one last week and doing 1917. So, um yeah, I, I think that might be the right choice. I feel like that is kind of the culmination of his of his many efforts mm-hmm. kind of coming together into a, just a really well-done package and I think I think it's a a movie that is worth seeing for sure. Yeah, yeah, it continues his. Yeah, I, th- I think especially if Isaac has already seen Blade Runner, I yeah. think yeah, nineteen seventeen is kind of a, is kind of a culmination and uh, continues his love of shooting um, night scenes lit by the amber light of a fire. <laughs> um, Always, just, yeah. Anytime every... <laughs> Roger Deakins does it, because Jarhead isn't doesn't he do that in Jarhead too? Yeah, I mean that's the whole that's kind of the whole big set piece in Jarhead with with the the oil wells burning, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that is like you know Roger Deakins doing that kind of stuff is like you know every time I hear the Star Wars theme music in a movie, <laughs> like no matter no matter what it is, I'm just like yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm loving it. All right, well, we'll see you next week. 
Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast that is fully funded on Patreon.com. Shout out to our producers, Darren O'Neill, for supporting the show and to the rest of you that support us at Patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. If you want to learn more about the benefits you can get, check out our Patreon. The show cannot happen without you great listeners, so we thank you for all your kindness and support.